So how do you achieve financial freedom, gain wealth, and live life on your terms? That is the question, and here is the answer. I'm A.J. Osborne. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. All right, I am super excited today, everybody, for all our listeners, all our fellow freedom fighters we got out there. We have Michael Blanca here, and he is just an absolute expert in several areas but particularly multifamily. A lot of my listeners probably already are familiar with him, but we'll get right in and talk about what he's doing. But I'd just like to start off. Thank you so much, Michael, for coming on here. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure to be here, AJ. Awesome. Well, let's. there's no time to waste. You have so much knowledge, and I'm so excited to dive into it. Why don't we get started? Tell us a little bit about your backstory. How did you get into real estate? And two, why did you pick the avenue that you went down? Yeah, my path was not the most direct, AJ. Back in 2005, when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I had a good amount of money because of a software IPO. So like many people, I was taught to go to school, get good grades. And I happened to get a computer science, got a master's and got a job. It was a late 90s. I joined a software startup and it uh, IPO'd in March of 2000. And it was great. So 2005 rolls around and I don't know, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. I really wanted to start my own software company. That's kind of what I knew. And then I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I was like, oh, I'm such an idiot. It's not how much money you have in the bank or even what your salary is, how much passive income you have. And I had very little interest in dividends, maybe at best. And so I decided to throw it all away and pursue this financial freedom. Because even though I had a bunch of money, it wasn't enough where I could sit on my butt for the rest of my life, nor did I want to. So I just wanted to parlay that money into passive income. And my idea at the time was to get into restaurants. And so don't judge me as misguided as it was. Long story short, it was an experiment that went very sideways. I ended up losing all my money. Plus, I added a couple hundred thousand dollars of debt on top of it to get myself out of that. I kind of dug myself out using real estate. And it's like like so many people, when they think real estate investing, they think single family house investing. And that's what I did. That's what everybody else did. That's what everybody else taught. I learned about apartments. I learned about I even learned how to train stocks and options and I held a few houses, and, but, but mostly it was flipping until I realized that I was making good money, but it was so active. There's so much work. I couldn't just take a month off when I wanted to. There was always something going on. I kind of accidentally got into this apartment building and the apartment building, once it stabilized, was just sending me mailbox money. And finally, I was like, you know, I should do more of this and less of that. And that's kind of when I shifted a little bit. And now looking back on, I've been doing it for got close to nine years or so. I do believe that commercial real estate, multifamily specifically, is the most direct, the fastest route to financial freedom there is. And the reason I love it is because you can you can get there both by being an active investor or by being a passive investor. The road leads exactly the same. And interestingly, as you study both the active and the passive investor, they want exactly the same. They want financial freedom. They want to control their time. And the way to get there is by passive income. And you can get to the same place, whether you don't have money and you have hustle, you can get there, or you have money but no time at all, you can still get there by being a passive. So my mission really is to educate real estate investors who are thinking single family house investing as an active side that is actually a better route. And anyone who's got money to invest, 98% of people have their money in stock market mutual funds and educating them about alternatives to the stock market that are crazily better than anything the stock market could ever offer. So you're talking about completely bypassing here, single family. You're talking about bypassing your stock market education, so to speak, and going straight into commercial. I think a lot of people out there will first of all say, all right, that's great, but that's not feasible. That's not doable. 
which by the way, let me be very clear. That's the route I took too. So if for people out there, I think first, why I'd love for you to clarify why you think that they should jump straight into commercial as opposed to dipping their toes in or trying to figure things out, starting in small. Why is it that you have that opinion? Like, why do you think that? They're limiting beliefs on the sh- on a short end of it. And, and I was, I had the same thing. I had two limiting beliefs and everybody else shares those honestly enough. They say, Michael, this is great. I've heard this before, but you know, let me, uh, let me buy, uh, you know, let me buy a single family house or a townhouse one per year for the next 10 years. And then I will take that experience and the money I make, and then I will graduate to this multifamily thing. And that's not a bad plan. Heck, that's better than most people's plan. The truth of it is, though, you don't need to do that. In fact, it's a giant distraction. When so many people have just skipped a single family house route and gone directly into multifamily, the reason they don't do it is because they feel that they don't have the money and they don't have the experience. Now, the truth is that you can overcome both of those very rapidly. The lack of experience you can overcome by educating yourself. And we have online training classes and coaching, but there's others like me out there. Uh, You can overcome that by using the right language, knowing how to analyze deals, and by building a team around yourself. And when you do that, you appear suddenly more experienced than you are because you're leveraging other people's track record. On the money side, if you don't have any money, then you raise it. Even if you have money, if someone's got a half a million dollars, that's great. That's enough maybe for a deal or two, then they run out. So then what are they they going to save for the next 10 years? No, they're going to raise the money. So it's surprising. It was to me and just like so many others that you can overcome both of those major issues very, very rapidly. And on the passive side, it's the same thing. And I wouldn't say it's a burn the boats thing, though that's maybe you have done that and others have done it, but it can be a gradual thing. So for example, if you have a great flipping business or you flipped a few homes and it's working for you, well, then keep doing that until you build up your income on the other side. I'm not saying stop what you're doing. It's the same thing with the stock market. Hey, you got money in a stock market. Well, it doesn't mean pull all of it out. Like no one's asking you to do that. What I am challenging people to do is to educate themselves about alternative investments. And it could be as broad as looking at precious metals or oils. But I'm specifically talking about commercial real estate because the benefits are so extraordinary over anything else. And it's an inflation hedge, it generates passive income, it has a variety of advantages that you can't get anywhere else. So simply looking into it and taking some amount of money saying, hey, I'm just going to try this thing. You know, I'm going to find myself a strong operator and I'm going to invest with that operator and I'm just going to see how it goes. And if it doesn't go well, well, maybe and I'll never do it again. But most people, it goes well and they're like, holy cow, where has this been all my life? I love two parts of this that you just talked about. And I, I want to hit on them really quick. So the first one you talked about is syndicating so to speak, or raising money. I find this interesting because you're right. People that they're like, oh, I'm going to do it on my own, which was us, for example. But no matter what, when you're doing real estate, at some point you start to go, well, do we want to speed this up? Do we want to do more? And especially when you learn what you're doing, because once you really know too, then you're like, well, I could do deals all day, but now I'm lack capital. So it almost seems like all real estate investors at some point start asking for money because there's more opportunity than they can you know, get a hold of or whatnot. So I agree. If you don't have it and think that uh, you have to have it yourself, well, no, virtually everyone raises capital. That's just part of the game. And so that is a very limiting belief that I agree you should take down. Now, the vast majority of it, I think people starting out, they're raising it from family and friends. Would you not agree? They, they all start out that way. Yep. Yeah. Family and friends, they're raising it. Now, not that that's simple in any way, shape or form, but it's one thing to rely on your own strengths 
and say, I can learn. I can reach out to you and others like you and I can learn. But how do you choose a good operator? That's a totally different ballgame that I think a lot of people have a really big hesitation because now you've got to give somebody that you don't know your money that you worked hard for. You know, how does somebody overcome? Because I feel that there's strategies maybe that you could help people that say, no, if you're looking passively, here's how to find a good operator. That's a great question. One of the main drawbacks of investing in commercial real estate in these syndications, the main drawback really is that there's a lack of liquidity. In other words, if you invest whatever, $50,000, you can't just ask for money back in three days. It's locked up and you have very little control over that money. That's the main advantage of stock market to some degree of a house that you own because you could sell this house. With this indication, you have very little control. So you're right. Picking an operator is absolutely critical. So how do you do that? The first step is, is just simply by talking with them and, and just talking to different operators. And a great way to do that is to go to these multifamily events. We just had one a couple of weeks ago called Dealmaker Live. Uh, but there's other people like me and going there and seeing possibly even who's on stage and talking with them and asking them questions around, hey, what are, the, what are you doing to protect my investments against the next market downturn, right? Like, what are you doing? And so you're looking, obviously, for track. You're really looking at the team. You're looking at the deal on the one hand, but really more importantly is the team because if you pick your team, the deal is secondary because if your team's good and you trust your team, it doesn't even, they could bring you an ATM machine deal and you're like, okay, sounds good. Here's my money because you know the team's doing a good job. Now, you should be a little more discerning, I suppose, but the biggest thing is the operator, right? So who's on the team? Who's doing what? What's their track record? How many deals have they done? Who's going to be managing the, this deal? Have they actually lost money before? Well, that was interesting, right? Because sometimes I feel if you haven't lost money before, you don't really know how to deal with the stress of that. And a lot of people deal with something like that by going dark. It's happened to me on the passive side. All of a sudden, the updates stopped coming and I was like, uh oh, you know, and then you try to call them and the no return phone call. And this is an example where someone has not experienced the stress of half of a project going sideways. Now, I have mostly on the restaurant side, but the stress is, is real nonetheless. And then also how they're approaching, how they're analyzing or buying properties. There's certain things that we tend to be more on a conservative side. So how are you being conservative? What are you doing with that? In other words, what are you doing to protect me from losing my money? Answer that question and see what they say. I like that. I like that a lot. Now, do you feel that there's a certain amount of deals that somebody needs to have to be a good operator or do you think that that's really not important as long as the team to come together has the experience or background? And two, if it is experience, like what kind of experience are you looking for? It depends. For example, if you're raising money from friends and family, you can raise money from friends and family without having done a deal before because they love you and trust you, right? You can't do wrong by them. And so that's a great way to get started. Now, if you start raising money from people you don't know, they tend to be a little more sophisticated. They're going to kind of go, Hey, AJ, how many deals have you done? Uh, well, none. Uh, and they might go, well, why don't you come back to me when you've done a few? And at that point, you go like, oh, I can't raise money. You know, I'm stuck. Well, what people there do is they joint venture with more experienced people. And so we get into joint venturing, which is really exciting because let's say you find a deal and it's a great deal and you have to raise a million dollars and let's say you could probably raise $200,000, which is a massive, huge achievement in itself, but you still need $800,000. Now, and you raise the $200,000 from your friends and family who love you, they'd do anything for you. But our last 800, not so much, right? So what do you do? What you do is you align yourself with a senior syndicator who does have the track record. And one of several things, one is they essentially become on as a general partner and almost like an advisory role. 
or, or they potentially take over the deal. In other words, they control the deal. So you bring them a deal, you raise some money, you become a general partner, you've done your first deal, they take over. Now, in, in so doing, they will then raise the money. We do that a lot on our end. So we have this deal desk where people can bring us deals and that's exactly what we do. So when that happens, just align yourself with a more senior syndicator who has a track record. So again, it's not so much, I think people really kind of, they, they kind of say, oh, I, it can't be done or I can't do it versus asking themselves, how can I do it? And okay, you hit on this also, but senior, senior syndicators and people that are looking for deals, whether it's you, whether it's me. So we're always looking for deals. In fact, most of the time, that's the biggest problem. So if you've got a deal and you say, I don't have the money and I need some more experience, but teaming up with some senior guys, they love that. Like you don't need to have limiting beliefs that they're going to go, oh, they don't either like me or whatever. For the vast majority of operators and syndicators and things, they're looking for a good deal. And if you have one, like I like to tell people, if you can do the work up front and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but if you can do all the work up front, know, learn from others, how to analyze, how to find the deals, then how to manage it. All of a sudden you can choose the right partners and two, you can choose the right deal. And if you can choose the right deal and go to the right partners or find good experienced ones that you know you can put your name with theirs so the deal won't fall through, it's going to work. I mean, as long as you're willing to do the work to get the deal, I really do believe that. The money, right? The partners, they'll come with the good deal. That's right. The deal is good. It's, it's all about the people, bottom line. And if you lack something, whatever it is, money, you can partner for money. If you lack experience, you partner for experience. If you lack the net worth, then you partner for someone with a net worth. It's, this is why I love this business. It's like a dream come true for the entrepreneur because it's literally the world is your oyster and different ways you can join venture to make something happen out of nothing. Okay. Now I got to ask you, what do you do every day? So I know you've got a lot going on, right? You're finding deals. Of course, now you have a whole team and everything, but a lot of people, they're almost like frozen, right? I'm not sure the next steps to take. I'm not sure where to go. How do you hold yourself accountable? And how do you put those processes in your life to make sure you're moving forward and finding deals, especially when somebody like you, where you don't technically need to, right? But yet you're out there making it happen. How do people get started? How do they really keep that momentum moving so it doesn't fall off and they get stuck? I can answer that on multiple levels, but you're right. The, the idea of being financially free with apartment buildings is so overwhelming because people in mind go, I need, a, I need to own a thousand units. How do I do that? What's my, there's like literally 256 steps to get there. And there's so many of them that you're completely overwhelmed. So I would answer that in several ways. Number one is you, you need to know what your why is really, why you want to do this thing. I'm fascinated by what, when do people take action and when, when don't they? And it really comes down to a decision point they've made that their life in its current form is unacceptable for some reason. In other words, they can't and don't want to be in the same place this time next year. And that is so unacceptable to them that they have to do something right now. now and the stronger that why is, the more likely they are to take action. So you can take action for a day or two or even a week or two weeks. But after a while, typically around the six to eight week mark, people's enthusiasm drops off. They're like, oh, it's more work than I thought. I don't, I don't really haven't made any progress. And this is for the birds. It's not going to work for me. And if their current life ain't so bad, plan B is really attractive. And it's very easy for them to fall back to our good job. Everyone's healthy. They have a nice house. It's nothing they have to solve right now. The people that are successful in their minds have made it such that a plan B is unacceptable to them. For whatever reason, it could be a life event, a health issue. It could have been something that happened to one of their children. They feel like their children are 
are growing up, whatever the case may be, I got to do something right now. Anything less is, is unacceptable. Once they've made that decision, the easiest thing to keep taking action, aside from reminding ourselves why they did it, is just to do the next three things. Like, don't think of the 256,000 things that actually need to happen for you to reach your goal. Just figure out the next three things. And everyone can sit there and tell you the next three things they should do. They might not be able to tell you the 12th thing that they need to do, but they can certainly do the next three things. And I found that writing down the next three things, call this person, read this person, do this, and then just doing it, and then doing it again the next week. And again, after a couple months of doing this stuff, you look up, you're like, holy moly, I've come a long way. And that kind of gets the momentum building. And in the scheme of things, you just have to focus on the first deal. This is what I love about that. You don't have to focus on 10 deals. No, you just have to focus on one deal. And the reason for that is I can't quite explain it. I call it the law of the first deal. And this phenomenon is so universal. I haven't found a single, <laughs> single exception to it. In fact, I wrote my book around this stuff, the law of the first deal. But you do one deal, which always takes the longest, is the hardest and always the smallest. And then somehow magically, the second and third deal just come automatically. They just happen. A lot of times that second deal is, is, is under contract before the first one is actually closed. And it's magical, which means that all I have to do is show you how to do your first deal because the second and third will just happen automatically. So you don't have to worry about that. It's just going to happen. Just trust that it will happen. So do what you got to do to get your first deal done. And that makes the problem much more palatable. It's such a real thing. And I can't tell you that experience. Just as hearing you talk about that brings me back to like our first deals, right? And all of a sudden when those checks hit, right? And you're like, wow, this worked. This is real. All of a sudden, it just takes a lot of those limiting beliefs away, which too, I think opens up the horizon. I mean, as we scaled, we'd stretch and get bigger every time. And every time we did something that we didn't think we could do, all of a sudden, it seemed like, you know, I imagine it like you're walking through a fog, right? And you can only see 10 feet in front of you. But then all of a sudden, it's like a breeze blows and just clears everything away. And I don't know what that is mentally. You're right. What it is about just taking that first step. It's no longer scary or it's no longer overwhelming. Let's just put it that way. And it's totally doable. But so many people, they really do. They have a hard time getting that first deal done. I do believe, and I think it's great for people too, that if they're not ready to raise funds and they don't believe them, go with somebody like you or somebody else that they can put their money with because they can see that deal and you're a part of that deal. And as that deal works and you're getting checks back, then you'll have more confidence to take what you've learned and continually do it. I, and uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm pretty sure you didn't do this alone. And I think that everybody has to realize there's so many resources out there. I know you as well as others. There's so many people that are trying to put this information out there and help you, but you're really not alone. You're not investing isn't an island. I have a huge team of people that help me as well. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you've developed a very large team now. It's a team sport for sure. And we just see it in the joint ventures that are happening. You know, one person is a relationship person. They love jabbing, talking to brokers, investors, but you put them on a spreadsheet and they get the cold sweats versus other people are, are analytical. So we see joint ventures happening there. Uh, we see people who love to, to hunt deals and they don't focus on the money raising. Well, that's a great joint venture happening as well. We see a lot of build, encouraging a lot of people to hire virtual assistants, you know, five, 10 hours a week, yeah, super affordable and, and just having people's minds think about what they can outsource to make their time more valuable. So it's definitely a team sport for sure. Anyone who tries to do it by themselves, 
will eventually get there, but we, we have noticed that people who do it with others, they do deals faster and the deals are bigger. We've talked about getting into it and getting that first deal done, let's say. Now, one of the problems that I've seen a, a lot is even though people may have one or two doors, particularly when you start non-commercial, and I was dealing with this a lot, but somebody has a few single family residents, right? And they're like, I don't know how to move forward because now the single family residents are priced higher than the cash flow because markets and single families aren't dictated by the revenue, right? They're dictated by what people want. So revenues don't matter. And now all of a sudden they're priced out of the market or they feel that they are, and they really don't know how to keep going or how to move forward. We've talked about the syndicating. So what, how do you do it though with your own business? Like after you got your first deal, how did you set yourself up to scale? Again, I don't want to overcomplicate things because when you're doing your first deal or even your second deal or your third deal, you're not really having to scale much. I think it's yeah. normally when people get to like the thousand units where you're like, oh my gosh, I think I need someone else or I need some kind of system that I don't have right now. You know, it kind of comes in waves. I think the, the biggest thing that we see is people burning out on some of the minutia, the admin and repetitive stuff. And that's where a virtual assistant, even early on, and we encourage people who have a job, a W-2 job, my gosh, really consider hiring a virtual assistant. And it's amazing what these people can do. They're super, super competent. So over time, though, you know, you do look at people and you do look at scale, right? So at one point, you got to think about, well, how am I going to manage all this stuff? I have a weekly call with my proper manager, which is when you have a couple of properties, not a big deal. But when you have 10, that takes up quite a bit of time. And, you know, when you have 10 investors, that's one thing. But when you have 100 investors, it's another entirely, right? But this is a progressive thing. And it's something... Yes, you have to think about, but again, nothing to, nothing to worry about. Just focus on that first deal, second deal, third deal. Other than hiring a, a, a virtual assistant, I don't think there's much really that uh, people should lose sleep over. Also, for people that may be analytical, like you said, I find it great. That's just perfect advice because if I like to do the spreadsheet and things like that, but I don't like to find the deals, hire a VA to do that. You're exactly right. So that you don't feel, once again, alone. So you can, even if you're not going through the joint venture, you can hire somebody out. Now, tell me a little bit, we've talked about you, but I want to know more about your real estate. Like how many apartments do you own? Do you own commercial or is it just all apartments? Tell a little bit about your portfolio and, and what you currently have. Yeah, our portfolio is about 1,400 units, uh, about $50 million in real estate. And we have kind of grown our, our portfolio through our deal desk. So these are deals that people have come. So almost all the deals are joint ventures. Well, they're all joint ventures, but the majority of them are, are from deals that uh, people have brought to us because we made it known that we want to partner with deals. And as part of my mission to help people do their first deal, we talked about that. So if I, if I do a deal on my own, it, doesn't, it serves me, which is great, but it doesn't help anyone else. So, so allowing people to bring us deals and partnering with them allows them to get into their first deal. And, you know, we're looking in Sunbelt, Texas, Florida, Alabama, some of the secondary markets is Alabama and Tennessee. These are places that are less cyclical. The markets, there was less of a run up during the big boom and there, was not, there wasn't any boom bust. They're kind of like even keel and there's a more of a potential for cash flow in these areas. And so that's kind of, and, and slightly less competition though, it's competitive kind of everywhere. Uh, versus great, fantastic cities like Dallas and Atlanta, that w which are great markets. And they're super, super competitive. And so we've been focusing a little bit more in the secondary markets. What's your size range that you like per deal? Do you have one or does it not matter? Yeah. So because we're joint venturing, there's an intersection of what we would prefer and what where people's comfort zones are. And so in the beginning, we would, I would say, make compromises and we would do a 50-unit deal or a 75-unit deal. The truth is that under 100 units, 
it is actually more challenging to do a variety of things. For example, managing it or getting actually make managing it profitably and surprisingly harder to raise money. So in an environment where joint venturing is kind of the norm. So for example, we could find a hundred unit and raise the money with three joint venture partners, right? These are all the people who all they do is raise money. And so I can fund, I can raise my two and a half million dollars with three or four partners. I'll maybe raise a little bit as well, for example. And if, if you raise money like that for more sophisticated investors, they know that smaller units are actually riskier. So it's, this is very counterintuitive. Now, if you're going to raise your own money and you're not, and again, this is back to the lone wolf thing. If you're going to do, if you're going to go alone, then your ability to raise money yourself is a factor, right? And so if I'm just going on my own, I'm, I'm going to raise money. I think I can raise $500,000. Then size does matter. Then I need to do a 20 unit or a 45 unit. But in an environment where it's so common now that people are joint venturing, those joint ventures are more successful if they're larger. So I would encourage everyone to consider finding 100 plus units. They're just, they're easier to get financing, non-recourse loans, they're lower interest, they're easier to manage, they're more profitable, they're less risky, and they're easier to raise money for. Do you do any development or are you just acquiring and is it a value add? Are you looking for underperforming facilities or are you looking for stable assets, cash flowing, good management already in place? I mean, I'd love to do just stable properties, but you can't get the returns. So they almost all of them tend to be value adds of some sort. The question is, is it a stable value add or is it a distressed value add, right? So stable value add means I can get long-term debt, for example, right out of the gate, though it's going to be harder for me to refinance that. Or do I get some kind of bridge loan, build my value, and then refinance out in the long-term debt? That's kind of our favorite model, doing something where we can add a lot of value to the deal and then refinancing out in 18 to 24 months returning the majority of the capital back to the investors, and then they continue getting cash flow from the deal. And that is our favorite model. That's kind of what we, what we look for. You mentioned real quick about your financing. It's just kind of walking you through this. <laughs> yeah, but you mentioned real quick about your financing. Do you do non, all non-recourse or how is that structured? And two, how is that structured with a partnership? I think a lot of people say, if I'm putting money with you or whoever, just in general, how does the financing work with them coming in? So yes, they're almost all non-recourse. There's one recourse loan that we did. These are typically on, on short-term bridge products or bridge loans, but typically even the bridge products, the 18, 24, 36 months are all non-recourse, but they have to be, you know, loan sizes have to be at least over a million dollars for those. So that's great. Worst case scenario, if something goes, goes really horribly wrong, you, know, you give the keys back and that's it. Now, if you're an investor or a passive investor you're, or what's called a limited partner, you are not signing on the loan right? You, you're limited. The law protects you as a limited partner. The only thing you can lose potentially is your investment. You're not exposed to any kind of lawsuits or anything like that. General partners have to deal with that. But you as a limited partner, the beauty of it is, is that your exposure is limited essentially to what you've invested. Now, you talk about these non-recourse loans. Where do you go get these? I know a lot of people say, I, can, I don't have access to non-recourse loans. And we've done several non-recourse loans. We've done them in the CMBS markets and we've done you know, several other ones, but how do you find non-recourse loans? And are they all in the same place? Do you have a relationship? How'd you build that? It's interesting. They're actually more, much more common in multifamily space. They're, these are typically loans that are backed by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac through the small balance loans. And these are loans that are typically a million dollars and above. And there are countless brokers out there that, that, are, that are certified Fannie and Freddie brokers. So it's actually much, much easier to get those. It's a, fair, it's a very well understood thing above that million dollar mark, which is, again, another, another argument for getting bigger because once it's smaller, 
you can't get those kind of loans, you're almost always dealing with uh, personally guaranteed loans by local or regional banks. When you talk about these different markets, do you have a cap size? Do you say we don't go below a certain population? Or are you looking at saying, listen, I, don't, I really don't care as much about the demographics or size? I mean, what's your feel there? We really want to be in cities with 300,000 or more people. And it's really driven by not so much the size itself as it is in the ability to have it managed. So in smaller cities, there might be one property manager and that's it. So if that property doesn't manage or doesn't perform, I'm kind of hosed. Like <laughs> I, I can't replace them. The larger cities, I have options, right? So if, if for some reason I picked the wrong property manager and I need to replace them, I can call three other guys who can do a reasonably good job. And that's why we stay out of some of those really small markets. Got it. Okay. This has been so awesome. Just tons of wonderful information and in-depth. I really appreciate it. But before we end, and I, and I know you're busy, I want to ask you just a couple questions here. You've had a long experience, everything from restaurants on and on in the tech world, but what books do you, give me, and we need three here, what books would you tell our listeners that like these are just a must? Yeah, the one is uh, The One Thing by Gary Keller really helps you clarify things in your life of what's important to you, and it also helps you accomplish or focus on that. So he talks a lot about time blocking, scheduling for these things, and making sure that you are actually making progress towards the one thing instead of firefighting all day, which we tend to do. So that was a really powerful book. The second one is The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. Really made a big difference in my life. It really show, it, it shows you what to do with the first 60 minutes of your morning and, you know, and how you gain clarity, how you practice gratitude, how you visualize and things of that, how you journal, meditate, pray. And that really has made a big difference in my life. And he just came out with another book, Hal Elrod. He came out with a, just like a couple months ago called The Miracle Equation. And it's a second book and it's awesome. It's almost better than the first one because it really shows you how to achieve goals in a way that I've never seen it done before, in a way that makes a lot more sense than I've read it before. And, and how you how you approach goals is quite a bit different than I've learned before. And it's very powerful because it made a lot more sense. So those three, aside from Rich Dad, Poor Dad, of course. Yeah. Awesome though. Those are great, great books. Now, how can our audience reach out to you? You're just full of so much information. How can they get their hands on, on more of this and what you're doing? Yeah, you can just Google apartment building investing. You should find me, but I'm at the michaelblank.com. The thing can, can only be one. So the T-H-E, Michael, B-L-A-N-K. We have a podcast, apartment building investing podcast, YouTube channel. We have a book called Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. It's on Amazon, blog articles, and we also have online courses and mentoring programs and live events. So uh, typically, what I tell people is just read all this free material, watch the videos, keep an open mind about whether it's right for you, either as an active investor or passive investor. And if it is, now you can go deep, right? Just now go pick someone that you resonate with, whether it's me or someone else, and just go deep with that person and learn as much you can and just, and just jump in. Awesome. And two, I have to say, I do have your book and it's a wonderful book. I read it about six months ago. Really great book. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for giving such valuable information to our listeners. I appreciate it. And we hope to have you on again. Thank you so much, AJ. Appreciate it. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Cashflow to Freedom. Be sure to subscribe to us for more and feel free to check us out at cashflow with the number 2freedom.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook. 
And also, if you could leave us a good review, that would really help us continue to build out our content and our community. Thank you so much.